Welcome to the Out of the Woods Podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Poley here with Mike Mitchell. Hey everybody. Hey Scott. And this weekly segment features the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our thoughts on the subject and hunting strategies. So with that, let's dive into the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of May 8th, 2023. So Mike, the first one I wanted to start with, um, it was from McAfee.com, and it's the Deconstructing Amade's latest multi-stage attack and malware distribution. Yep. Um, I liked this article because there's just a ton of st- like activity. Like you know, usually when you see, hey, there's a malware, it like does its own couple things, and that's kind of what you look for. I mean, this is like noisy in a different way. And like my process, I, I want, I'm going to highlight my process and like what are the first things that I grab at when I'm like, hey, if I want to look for these types of things, like how do I determine what I search for, how I search for, it, and like what is my, I guess process and reactions to those actions but basically it was a a legitimate windows executable file uh wextract.exe um the the attackers have been taking advantage of or basically replacing with a malicious version of it and things like that the legitimate version is basically used for extracting um cab files uh they're basically archives and they've been using this you know their version of this file and things to basically distribute malware, steal information, gain remote access, like doing a number of different things. And, and then their goal is they would, re- they would replace the the kind of distributed version of that with their own kind of executable. So it would, be, it would still do the same functionality as normal, but also be used for that malicious capability. Is that correct? Yeah, that's what it looked like. And it was um, someone like looked at the artifacts of the file properties and it had a lot of like Russian language um, with also the standard mm-hmm. um, language. Like for instance, it still had like the original file name was the correct one, but then, you know, it was slightly tweaked and things like that. But the the thing that was interesting, they ran through a bunch of like, this is the kind of stuff we saw when executed. Um, and one of them was obviously a lot of file drops to the temporary directory, which is pretty common. Some It's a directory that's good to just kind of keep an eye on and watch for different types of file types in general um, across your environment. But, you know, one of the things that's always kind of funny is I always look at, okay, what kind of files are being dropped and what do they look like? How, what are the naming conventions and things like that? And, you know, in their run, it was really kind of just like a random four alpha character named executables. And what's interesting is it's like more than one executable because I feel, I feel like with their analysis, they showed, they kind of had a payload for every specific capability. And I don't know if that's their way of how they develop or keeping things modular so they can just kind of have like a master executable that then runs all these other ones after they get distributed on the system for different purposes or what. But that's a pretty noisy thing. Um, so like, for instance, when I saw that right out of the gate, I'm like, oh, well, if I can look for file crates in the temp directory that are you know, greater than one, the name is approximately four characters, you know, in a five minute window um, by host. 
that kind of already can tell me, hey, there's something interesting going on here because that's not, I wouldn't think, a normal thing that would happen in your environment. Now, I say I wouldn't think because when I kind of come up with these like off the hip things to kind of like look at to build and run, you know, it's good to kind of like run that base thing and don't like say we have something right out of the gate. Like, oh yeah, we got something for this specifically. You know, those are things you run and then you say, oh, is it easy to determine out of this what's noise if there is noise or not? You know, asking those questions so that you know, hey, how do we promote this? How do we mature this? So that was... Uh, one of the first things I saw, the other thing was they had a, one of the executable specific purpose, I guess that they're like purpose built, was actually grabbing multiple registry values associated with the uh, HKLM registry hive for the Windows Defender, uh, yeah, kind of directory, because they basically were like querying those and then also setting them to basically disable Windows Defender. So, you know, the same idea, okay, well, how many registry key values um that are that uh, path, HKLM has Windows Defenders, where you see values being set, you know, maybe um, two times within a five-minute window. Like, I don't think that's a normal process, and you can kind of run that, too, for that behavior, essentially. And then they also had some uh, web-downloaded EXEs, um, which was another way they pulled them in. So one way those EXEs were being created where they're being unpacked, uh, archive extractor so they were extracting them that way but then they'd also do web callouts to download files but they were also putting these in the temp directory as well so kind of the same idea where if you see file creates you know more than one and the, the name characters were similar four to five characters this time weren't all four characters but you know in five minutes in a five minute window you know kind of the very first hunt that I was describing kind of matches it similarly with this one so now you might you know, kind of give some credibility to that process in general for looking for those things. And then they also had the schedule task being created from the temporary directory um, off those executables, another great thing to look for. And then they also, what was interesting was I mentioned how they had like a master executable that kind of ran a bunch of other things that kind of, I guess, drove the malware. Um, and it seemed to be like the schedule task piece once it hit that point, whatever that schedule task was, that was kind of the driver. Mm -hmm. But there's a, what does executable for CACLS, which is basically like change ACLs or change the file permissions. And it calls that a numerous amount of times to change all the file permissions on all the executables and things it dropped since it had so many. So seeing that called multiple times within, you know, say like a five minute window on the host was another way to kind of look at and detect that. So, you know, it's, it was interesting because there's a lot of capabilities and they do a, a lot of really good analysis. And some of the analysis that they do shows you how they try to hide from defensive tools, which is cool, but that doesn't really help you necessarily detect this activity. And so, you know, I just kind of don't want to walk out, you know, walk the behaviors of, hey, things on a system, the things that it does, does it blend in with the normal things that happen on a system or not? And that's kind of what I like to see what stands out. So that was kind of a process. Yeah, I mean, the, the amount of artifacts um, to be able to hunt for in this is, is pretty... Uh... <laughs> Exhaustive, right? Um, I know there's one, the the Mikit IDXE that turns off Windows Defender, right? Mm -hmm. Things that are really easy to hunt for. Um, you mentioned dropping all those files in the temporary directory, changing permissions, um, just kind of the workflow through this outside of detecting the file itself. Because again, as we talk about, that's really easy to manipulate. Right. If you're looking for hash or, you know, any type of heuristic type of data off of these, these binaries, but 
their the workflow and what happens after that initial file is dropped is pretty uh, specific, right? It needs to happen in a certain order. Um, these all of these things then allow the maliciousness to actually occur. So uh, this article does a great job calling out specific command line arguments, things that happen on the box uh, specific to these these files, and you can kind of potentially almost remove the file name and look at the behavior and look at the, the kind of the attack chain flow of what these things are doing on the box to call out malicious mm-hmm. as well. So I think that's kind of important to call out, right? Because a lot of times people plug in, hey, have I seen this CMK, MK, EXT file in my environment? I mean, that that file name can change, right? So we need to start looking yeah. at the behaviors. So I love these these reports. They're, they're amazing. Um, they kind of break it down from a little bit more of a simplistic manner, um, but it's still important to understand what to pull out and what to call out from like a hunting perspective. Right. Yeah. The one thing I thought, uh, you know, I normally don't pay too much attention to the hash IOC lists, you know, that are always present, um, after a lot of these reports, but what was interesting when in this circumstance is they have, like I said, purpose built, you know, executables, they were pulling down to do different things. So when you actually look at the detection, like, um, their rules or whatever you want to call it, their, their names for their detections for the different EXEs that's also associated in their table. You can kind of see all the different capabilities. Like they have like Lockbit in there, Agent Tesla. They have some generic and Trojan based type things, a downloader, all that kind of stuff. And sometimes that information I think is useful when you start looking at, Hey, so there's separate files that perform these functions. So that means there's going to be a lot of activity either in directories they target or the file types they're using and things like that. Um, that might help you, if not identify some of these behaviors, uh, validate. Yeah, absolutely. Matter, so. Absolutely. And yeah, we always talk about, look, IOCs are important. They matter. Um, detection matters, but that should be kind of the, the kind of the initial process for you to then cover down the rest of your environment. Right. And so it, it's important to have those indicators of compromise across the board. It's cheap to get those deployed. It doesn't cost a lot. doesn't cost a lot of. Right processing anymore it's kind of the the first and probably initial thing i would do um ahead of then running through the rest of the hunts yeah cool yeah you got so yeah we'll move on um there's an article around uh reversing labs talked about kind of solar winds that popped up again in the space some new news came about around the timelines of the attack this article itself is talking about the DOJ potentially knew about the attack six months before it really hit the uh, the airwaves. Um, there was a really interesting article that was published in Wired that kind of broke down the whole timeline around when it first hit the DOJ's kind of purview, uh, when Mandiant got kind of wind of it, and when it all kind of blew up past that point. And so really this article, I kind of always kind of lean in on some of the policy around um, cybersecurity and operations. Um, and this one's really interesting because I mean, the DOG kind of sat on it for six months, right? The kind of the breadth of the attack around solar winds, the number of customers that were deployed, the number of customers that were affected. I think they said about 18,000 customers. Um, and I know they had, they, they had initially noticed it, but didn't correlate it back to the solar winds kind of supply chain supply chain breach. It took Mandiant a while to even figure out that that's where it was coming from, right? Um, and Mandiant themselves were affected by this. 
And so it just kind of goes into that dwell time of some of these attacks, especially on the supply chain side. Um, and then just the reporting mechanism, right? Um, when do you actually need to report on these type of potential leaks or attacks or ransomware? Um, just going into, you know, how hard it is to actually identify sometimes um, the, the breadth and scope of some of these attacks. So I know we were dealing with it. I know when it popped, we were building some hot packages around it. But again, not really noticing the or understanding the breadth of the attack. Um, it's hard to really kind of understand you know, the full scope of it. So I know you, you've been on the practitioner side, Scott. You know, I'm sure this might have caused some, some memories to pop up. Or have you dealt with these type of attacks? Um, and you probably understand what it took for the, these guys to be on call for, you know, 20 hours a day trying to figure this stuff out. So I just want to kind of get your thoughts on it. Yeah, I know SolarWinds was a mess. I mean, I think luckily when it was kind of emerging, we we weren't using it internally, that, that, you know, at least legitimate versions of it, right? Like obviously we were more worried that, hey, was someone running, you know, a demo version or some version that was affected that they just got and were, you know, using for some reason. So that was kind of our first pass. So luckily that, that, we didn't, that didn't turn into anything for us. So, well, so we kind of like, first time ever I felt like I could sit on the sidelines and just watch how everyone else dealt dealt with it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but the, uh, the one thing it makes me think a lot about is just the communication aspect, right? Um, like if you look at someone like, um, when there was really, really a true big threats or, or valid threats and there's a breakdown in communication, bad things always happen. Um, I think that was kind of like the world trade centers, you know, scenario as well, right? Where, People knew some things, just not the right people were talking. And it kind of brings me back to like, you know, people like knowing what to share, when to share and all those things is, is kind of an art uh, because you can't like share everything effectively. Uh, right. But that's why I always like the uh, the concept of like the fusion center where you kind of have the liaisons from different groups that are, are invested in the same, you know, for the same purpose. So they're able to like kind of be part of the bigger picture and then they can decide to disseminate things back down if it makes sense or not. Um, and I was kind of thinking of the ISACs um, as a, an example of where maybe they could benefit from this. You know, the ISACs, obviously they're very focused in their vertical, um, but for something like this, when it comes to solar winds, where the verticals didn't really matter, um, right. it would have been interesting if ISACs had a way to have those people from different ISACs working across to be able to say, hey, these are some big things happening in our area. Anyone else seeing it? Or what are some big things happening in your areas? Or what are some things that are interesting? And, you know, to kind of open up that uh, not closed-walled intel-sharing type of structures that we typically are really good at standing up. Um, and you can see these examples like this, I think, start to cause problems, um, even with big government-run organizations. Uh, but, but yeah, that's kind of what made me think it was just like the breakdown of communication and how that's the best way to really solve these problems, you know, when you, when you think about it. Yeah, I know one of the big concerns was is that if they went live with kind of uh, pinpointing down to SolarWinds, that the attackers would pick up on that and then just start to kind of destroy some of the environment. Yeah, they they had, what their motive was. Right. Yeah, they had no idea what the yeah. motive was. It was really, luckily, intelligence gathering. Um, but again, if you have to imagine if they're in environments and then you start to, you know, share some of that intelligence via, let's say email or Slack, and they have hooks into that, you don't know what visibility those attackers have in the situation. Right? Yeah, it's kind of scary, right? Or, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm not, you know, 
bringing this up, not saying DOJ did the wrong thing here. I don't even know if they knew the full scope of the attack or understood that it was really a supply chain. They saw something. Many, it took a lot of time. They're experts in cybersecurity, and it took them a long time to figure out where the scope of this threat was. But, you know, how do we go about kind of sharing this information across the board? How were those 18,000 organizations kind of, you know, identified and communicated to that there's a threat in their environment? But Again, you, you kind of had to be careful because you had no idea the motive and the, the scope of mm-hmm. destruction that these attackers could have done in the situation. So, I mean, it's probably still ongoing. I think we are lucky that, you know, a lot of these organizations got out uh, without real blemishes, right? This could have been a very, very, very bad situation for every industry, to your point. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, the big thing really is I don't want to knock people for doing the wrong thing. It's more about right. communications is hard, right? And Absolutely. I feel like that's, that's something that, you know, the better we get at that, the, the less these problems become as big as they can get as so. For sure. Yeah. For sure. So yeah, that's a very interesting cool. article. Um, so yeah, the next one I want to hit was from, is a Sentinel one article and it's, uh, the Kensuke evolves reconnaissance capabilities in new global campaign. And this is, uh, Kensuke is a North Korean, uh, state sponsored APT group. They kind of target everything worldwide. And these campaigns are actually using a new malware component that they were dubbing the Recon Shark um, that I think evolved from Baby Shark. I don't know what they called it in the past. It kind of uses unique execution instructions um, and server communication methods. That It's just kind of a new thing that is emerging, and they're starting to see the expansion of this reconnaissance operation, which is always interesting to me too, right? When you see nation states being discovered for reconnaissance, you know, they're... In some ways, I feel like they have the capacity to just, hey, we have the resources, let's just gather information because we can. But then I also think it's a very well-organized, I would think, for a lot of the operations. So when there's reconnaissance, there's like also a lot of purpose behind it. So it just kind of gets my wheels turning on like, okay, well, I mean, it truly is reconnaissance. And in this, they're just really grabbing like what kind of security software are people using, what kind of, you know, OSs, patch levels, whatever, right? And so, you know, obviously it's one way to validate, well, will their capabilities still stand? That was just the motives behind reconnaissance always fascinate me because we never really know the answer. A lot of times you can't even directly correlate attacks to reconnaissance. But when I was reading through the article, one of the things I saw that they used uh, curl, you know, as one of the ways they're pulling things down. And it made me think of, you know, that's a, a common thing um, that people should be aware of or be looking for. And one of the easiest ways to do that, um, if, especially got web data, is look for the user agent. It curls in the user agent. So if you're looking for, you know, a user agent that contain curl, I mean, it's it's good to even know where your administrators are grabbing things and things like that. And even not associated with attack, it's a good thing to profile is how it's curl being used because it's a very common way for a lot of people with administrative type access to, to move things around or grab things from outside. So that was one thing that stood out. The other thing was the way that they really dug in to kind of stay persistent with their reconnaissance. So I thought that part was pretty brilliant. So when they enumerated what kind of defenses you had on your system, that kind of dictated what they would deploy. So it was very like almost purpose-built reconnaissance based on the environment they landed in. Um, and this was all being distributed through a uh, phishing email, OneNote, um, download a password protected document with macro. And that's kind of the initial uh, vector. But 
um, they were updating the LNK files for the shortcut links, basically for your all the browsers that you might have and Outlook and attaching command line parameters to basically when you open your browser, it's also going to run other things in the background. So talk about a really good persistent mechanism where people are going to be checking their mail and opening the web browser pretty much daily. Um, so I thought that was uh, really interesting. And something to be thinking about that, like, you know, depending on what kind of visibility you have, I think the best way to pull some of that out is looking at modified timestamps for those specific types of um, files. Because obviously, if you're updating the LNKs on, you know, the desktops or whatever, if you have visibility to modified timestamps, it's one way where you can probably easily pick this up. Um, but the other thing they did for um, getting persistence for reconnaissance is, um, there's .m files, which if you're not familiar with .m, it's like the template that Microsoft Word uses when you open up a Word document. And you can have different templates depending on what you want to open, but there is a default one. And they actually go replace the .m, it's like normal .m um, in the Microsoft templates directory. They replace that with their own malicious version of that that also has like macro things built in so it does things that way. And so I think it's also a good idea if you have any kind of file monitoring like Sysmon, if you put .m as a thing, because I don't expect a lot of templates to be flying around, but I know there's been past attacks where .m files are trying to be pulled via SMB and things like that as part of attacks. It's a good file extension to be aware of and where it's going and it shouldn't generate a lot of noise, but that was something else that I saw. And then, you know, one of the common behaviors I always see, especially when there's macros and things like that involved, a lot of attackers will start shell commands, right? That's just something they do. And so you see a lot of CMD slash C, basically run the command prompt and the slash C says and the command following this. Right. And so it was just the iterations of command slash C, command slash C, command slash C, uh, as they're kind of executing their script, but like on line by line basis. Um, so it was like, if you're looking for command slash C, you know, like more than four and five minute window on a, on a host, you'll see the activity associated with at least their initial stuff and maybe their ongoing stuff. So that's something that I kind of picked up on as far as behaviors to look for. Just they're kind of just I want to say they're the behaviors that would overlap too with other activity and other groups. You know, I've seen them behave. So just kind of a good thing to keep an eye on. It was interesting how they rooted in everything. So yeah, I, and it was really interesting. You're talking about the reconnaissance side. You made a really good point around you know these organizations doing the reconnaissance, right? Like there's ways to pick up that that we'll call it you know the start of the initial access. Um, into an environment, um, and especially if it's an ancient state, right? They they typically have the trait, craft, and the skill to potentially not be seen. Um, and it seems like once they're ready to kind of go live, they're really just spamming out um, a lot of this targeting. You know, you had a lot of the curl commands, a lot of those really kind of easy to find artifacts. But in your, again, thinking as a practitioner, like what would you typically do if you're now starting to see you know, a lot of these commands start to pop or, you know, you're starting to understand that you're, you're, the reconnaissance starting to happen in your organization. Yeah. The reconnaissance, reconnaissance thing is hard because I know like we've always had like the, like, especially when you buy a lot of products, the first thing I'll do is like, Oh, look, you can sell a scanning activity and mm -hmm. we can tell you what kind of scanning activity it is. And sometimes I'm like, I kind of don't care until I see things that are scanning uh, things that shouldn't be in a position to be scanned, I should say. Right. Um, then I start caring more. And so, you know, especially with the reconnaissance stuff, like understanding the things they're pulling back 
sometimes at least lets you know, oh, well, if they're really interested in, in specific tools, like, you know, hey, are they running Defender or running, you know, uh, CrowdStrike or whatever, then, you know, it, it makes sense like, okay, well, I should probably look at what are some ways people have beat, beaten the tools that I have, if, if that's something they're looking to try to sidestep or do whatever, because it's not often that people come up with or people use their new capabilities to sidestep that doesn't that there's not one that's already publicly known. Like if there's no publicly known way to sidestep your tool, then you you can probably expect to see something net new. But a lot of times it's good to position yourself that way, just knowing kind of what are the things the adversary is concerned about, because that's kind of what you're getting is a list of concerns yep. and a list of opportunities. Um, that's kind of like to break up those buckets because you know opportunities are going to be like, hey. We run a lot of really outdated versions of this, and the adversary just knows we run out version data, you know, versions of this. So we should probably maybe patch that version. You know, that might push processes differently. Or hey, we have up to date versions, but they still seem to really care about this. Is there any other things that we need to position ourselves for to think about? You know, it's it's a I mean, it's a chess game. Sure, that's a really good way to think about it, though. And again, with these articles breaking it down. It gives you a lot of stuff that you can kind of proactively hunt for in your environment ahead of, again, any detections firing. But, you know, breaking down the information exfiltration, the payload deployment, uh, the infrastructure analysis, like all of that goes into kind of understanding that threat. So, you know, again, mm -hmm. they do a really good job of kind of summarizing this particular article. Um, and then some of the artifacts that you called out in and around, you know, some of the artifacts the article calls out, I think is, is awesome to kind of, Again, you always breaking down the uh, the little nuggets of, of detail and artifacts in these. Yeah, it's a pretty good article. I mean, I always like uh, one thing I'm always grateful for is I feel like a lot of the security like EDR type products they usually have pretty good articles because uh, one they're highlighting what their tool can actually see sometimes or assist with, but they do take it like a, a level deeper than some of your generic blogs and things like that. So they're always fun to kind of pick up and try to use what data you can oh. all right so what do you um, got? yep uh so my article um centered around i think we talked about this a few months ago but san bernardino's sheriff department was uh ransomed back in april and again this just goes into what we we're talking about uh yeah i think one of the previous podcasts around the speed in which these attackers are really just going after these organizations to get money. Um, not necessarily concerned about the data, but look, let's just try to get all we can out of these different organizations. So they ended up paying, it looks like $511,000 where the insurance carrier picked up the rest of that ransom. So in total is 1.1. So they had cybersecurity insurance potentially the government might have backed them if they did not have cybersecurity insurance um, because it was a part of the state being it being the sheriff's department or the county sheriff department but it just kind of goes into as they continue to pay it's going to drive a lot of these attackers to continue to ransom because they are being paid mm -hmm. uh, especially if they're you know encrypting a lot of the sensitive data and then just going into conversations around cybersecurity insurance i think we're, you know, I've talked about this before. I think we're in a situation where a lot of these insurance companies are starting to underwrite a lot of these policies. Uh, it was interesting. I believe it was this week. Mer I think I'm saying this right. Um, Merck and Company. It's a big IT firm. 
uh, they were affected by not Petya, um, yep. and they finally won their legal dispute. Uh, I think it was for 1.4 billion in losses uh, because they claimed it was an act of war, and there was an exclusion for acts of war in the insurance kind of policy. But I guess um, through litigation, uh, they were actually awarded that. And so I'm sure that insurance company now is underwater because they did not have 1.4 to cover that. And so we're starting to see that these insurance companies are now having to help pay out um, a lot of these policies based on, you know, the policies that these organizations have. Um, and I would love to see what the after action to this is. So do they have to update their cybersecurity posture, add tools, add capabilities, add people, add different functions, and maybe even up the level of detail you have to have in order to get some of these insurance policies as well. So it's just interesting to see as we start to pay these out, we're going to see more of these attacks because, you know, this is a really quick and easy method for these attackers to make quite a bit of money. Um, and so, yeah, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, no, I saw this and, and first you brought up the whole, not that you thing. I always, um, was curious how, how they won that. And if they were like, uh, the scope was, you know, what does act for mean? Like, do you have to be the target or, or, or it's collateral matter, like depending on where you sit on the stage for that. Mm-hmm. So I was curious if that played into it at all, but you know, the, the one thing I always, you know, thought was interesting was, you know, government officials, FBI, um, whoever always kind of tell you, you shouldn't pay the ransom. Right. right. Um, but, and then they, you know, obviously went through and paid, but then also I was thinking too, when it came to their specific case, like if it's law enforcement and they have data, you know, ransomware groups, not only do they encrypt data, they usually pull data out and try to, you know, hit you with extortion. So you pay so that it doesn't get publicly released. And they probably had to weigh the risks of that, like what kind of case data or people's safety associated with maybe undercover work or, or whatever could be part of that. Um, they probably had to kind of put, you know, into that calculation, which also makes it interesting as far as um, kind of a unique problem for specific business slash sector verticals for maybe you should be thinking about that as far as your strategies on what you plan on doing to prepare for ransomware or respond to ransomware, because it's easy to say we won't pay or we have backups, but if you have data that um, could put you at more risk, like I was, I've always kind of wondered, you know, if you have compliance obligations, like, you know, what, what does it say where you can prevent sensitive information that you're required to protect from being disclosed if you make a payment versus if you let it out because you refuse to pay, does compliance come into effect there? I don't know the answer to that. I'm sure someone does have an easy answer like, oh no, or yes, it's obvious, but uh, it's been a while since I've been in the compliance space. Um, but yeah, so think things like that, right, I think are, are interesting. And I think this kind of highlights a little bit of that, right, where I'm assuming they're in a, a unique situation where they had to pay and because I don't think their stance initially would be like, oh, yeah, we would pay. I feel like they would do everything but pay, except for there had to be a pressure point somewhere. Yeah, I'm sure it being the sheriff's department, there's a lot of sensitive information they did not want getting out. Right. And and public safety or safety in general is kind of one of those things where people say, you know, well, you can't put a dollar value on someone's life, right? And that's when I think it, it makes it easier to make those decisions where we just they decide to pay. So I always, you know, curious about that. Yeah, well, um, again, we'll we'll track this over time. I'm sure we'll have way more articles around what's yeah. uh, aware as the next couple months come about. But um, I think we have one more article. Yeah, which kind of leads me into another ransomware type discussion, but it's more about uh, kind of a food for thought thing. 
because we've kind of talked about supply chain and we've talked about ransomware. And then, you know, this article hits is the Alpha V gang claims ransomware attack on the Constellation software, which Constellation software is a Canadian diversified software company. Um, so they kind of have multiple software companies are there, but obviously responsible for putting software in as a third party uh, resource into, you know, companies' hands, organizations' hands. And, you know, if a ransomware group gets access to the network, it's one thing, right? They they obviously have access. Their their goal is to, you know, encrypt, extort potentially and make money. Uh, but where I talk about food for thought is, you know, first we worry about supply chain attacks, right? Because how devastating that can be. And, and you know, mentioned earlier with the solar winds, like how big at the scale that was and how hard it was to really like respond once it got kind of out of hand and, you know, ransomware groups, they get access to all sorts of various networks because that's kind of their goal in it. So they don't really have like specific targets. They're kind of like all over the place. Sure. Um, and then, you know, Russia has been behind some of the most known supply chain attacks and ransomware groups are typically operating or at least protected, um, within Russia's kind of space in a number of instances, like you hear about these groups are so these ransomware groups are associated Russian based, whatever. And we know that Russia kind of creates some of that safety safe haven, as long as they're not actually hitting Russia with these attacks. So, and ransomware, you know, their goal is to make money. So when is, when are we going to hit that tipping point where these ransomware groups realize they can start making money by merging kind of an access brokers, like they get access to a network that, one of these nation states wants access to for supply chain driven type of attack, what's to prevent the ransomware group saying, we're not going to be loud and proud and, you know, hit them with, you know, encryption. We're just going to sell the access and make our money that way because it's easier. The money, you know, you don't have to, I don't think you have to launder the money at that point, uh, you know, the same way or deal with all those hassles. And I'm like, for instance, I think this would be a great, you know, if they hit constellation software, not saying they have like access to all the source code, right. When they hit them. But, you know, you hand a little bit of access to the right adversaries, they can then run with it and do a lot more potentially. So that's, that's kind of where my head goes when I when I kind of saw this, when, especially with some of the topics we were bringing up, you know, along the way. So that's kind of what I want to bring it up is kind of like that food for thought, like, hey, you know, and ransomware didn't used to extort for a while, but that kind of changed their operation. And that might have been one of the reasons why they got the county sheriff's office to pay, right, to force sure. payment. So. As people change how they respond to things, that might be something else that we'd have to consider as far as um, so, how these groups operate. Yeah, so there's a group that gets access and then they sell that off to the group that would potentially ransom and get payment, right? They might sell off the access just to get so that they can get in and then put their back doors and all their source code so that then they can get access to everything else, right? I mean, they could still make a decent profit on, hey, we're selling access to this thing. It's Mm-hmm. Call it a million, and then you can ransom it for three and make two profit, right? It's just about well, yeah. their and their risk because they have risk as well. Um, and so that initial group that gets access, and you start looking for that from a hunting perspective, it could be a completely different group that's actually following through with the rest of the steps. Right? Oh, the behaviors, yeah, will not be like a, the same profile. It'll be, it'll be two exactly. different basically behavior profiles. profiles using the yeah. same access, which could be tricky, um, but that's a really interesting concept to think about, and I'm sure that's going to start happening more and more as well. So, you know, how do we hunt for kind of the unknown, you know, who got access, but you don't know who's actually still control of it. Yeah, right? that's why I like to focus on, you know, we've gotten requests, and I hear people talk about like, oh, I want to hunt for, you know, APT group this. 
And it's like, yeah, I mean, that's cool. Especially if you really think you're actively engaged with them, right? Like, Hey, we know that they've hit us multiple times. They might even still be on our network. That's okay. That's why we would focus on for that. But if we don't know that they're there, there's a lot of really good techniques to just be looking for in general. They kind of will, you know, and I feel like that's where you like, you're hunting for behaviors that are popular. You're hunting for behaviors that are really effective or, you know, effective at kind of hiding or whatever it is from specific tools. Um, then you, you can, you know, when you run an instance where people are passing access or whatever, it doesn't matter as much because there might be a technique that's shared to whoever they give access to. Yep. Yep. Uh, and Absolutely. I think that's where, um, that really helps to kind of have like, what are our core strategies on hunting? And, you know, where are we hunting within the gaps of our tools too, right? So we're not like hunting for things our tools can potentially pick up, you know, as well. So, you know, that's kind of like that defense in depth, all those things we talk about um, from like a security maturity thing. Um, But yeah, so I think that's a a good claim to why hunting is, or threat hunting is a good uh, art and craft to have. For instances like this, where, you know, you don't know, what kind of behavior profiles you're up against, but you can at least tackle multiple at one time. Yep. Yeah, no, great article. That's a, we're going to need some things to think about too. Um, as we try to frame the importance of hunting, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, cool. So we have some, uh, some updates for everybody listening. Yeah. So we want to highlight and, and mention that we do have our live podcast May 18th from seven to eight thirty PM Eastern standard time. And, one of the things we also want to try to get uh, is questions um, beforehand or, or topics that, you know, people want to hear us talk about or dig into or or even topics they want to be part of, you know, that they can bring up that we can, you know, bring to the table. Send those questions or topics or things to our out of the woods, plural, at cyborgsecurity.com. And we'll be monitoring that, looking for that. And, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll get some uh, really good content there to kind of help dig into open up for things that you know people are listening want to want to hear about and talk about and then we have a another top cover three it's our third uh edition uh it's going to be focused or hyper focused on reporting and communication um that's going to be uh may 24th from 12 to 12 30 p.m eastern standard time so you know short sweet but hopefully just get right to the meat and should be good then we also have our threat hunting workshop uh targeting the exfil um, vertical and miter. Um, that's going to be May 31st from 12 to 1 PM Eastern standard time. And those are always really good where you get your hands on some real tools and data. Um, and you can kind of hunt alongside and kind of see the thought process methodology and kind of sharpen some of your tool sets, uh, so to speak for, for what we got there. So I think that ends the highlights for people to be kind of looking for, looking out for. So I just want to thank everyone for joining our out of the woods through hunting podcast. Uh, looking forward to syncing back up next week. And with that, that closes out the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of May 8, 2023. Hey, happy hunting. Take care, everybody. Yeah. Happy hunting. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.